before we jump into the app, quick reminder that nothing on Bell Curve is financial advice. Everything is just a meme. Hope you guys enjoy. Do you have Tom Brady like jump through a hoop on fire on like yeah, an kiss FTX his for 20 like, seconds? <laughs> I cannot <answer> that. <laughs> Full make out, baby. Kiss me like a man. <laughs> All right, everyone. Welcome back to another roundup of bell curves. You've got Mike's one and two, Yano and Vance. Folks, welcome. Hey guys, Thanks. guys. I've got some exciting news um, on the on the Blockworks front. Uh, Jason actually just accepted a position at Kim Kardashian's new private equity fund. Yano, congrats, buddy. I would. Wow. I would. In a heartbeat. <laughs> like make maker delegate or like Kim Kardashian associate. Like I mean, there's an obvious choice there. That'd be quite a resume. I think she's. Gonna- money from this i think she's going to be so successful people who are fading her just like how can you i don't get it this, this is such you. a no-brainer such a no-brainer good idea yeah i think she's going to make some like the amount of like consumer packaged goods companies that are down bad that she can just buy turn around yeah. put her sheen yeah. on and like resell like i think she's going to just kill you know, it. every single new to see brand that launches now is like a person's thing it's like ryan sheckler's pancake mix it's like you know this person's nail gloss <laughs> You know, it's uh, it's like every new brand, and she's going to be the the queen of that. It's like uh, back in the '90s with Cisco and Oracle, when you had the networking technology or the database technology, and you had the relationships with all the businesses. Literally, all their their entire growth strategy was just buy up businesses, take the products from those businesses, and cram them down the throats of your existing customers. Like that, it worked. I mean, both of them became 150 plus billion dollar companies. And uh, I mean, this is the same thing. It's just like the new the new age. Influencers are mm-hmm. the new conduits. How do you how do you think she translates it from like leveraging her brand and distribution to being on top at a, at a private equity fund? Because she can't really take like every single investment that they do. Do you think it's like expertise that she has in flipping it? Because she can't like put the Kim K, you know, personal stamp on everything they invest in. Like, how does that work from a fund? I think if you're a CPG firm and the options are like sell for cash uh, to one buyer or sell for like. 90% cash plus 10% upside and whatever Kim Kardashian, you know, is going to do to your brand. Like you probably take the upside. So mm. she has an advantage in sourcing. And then I think once it works, she has an advantage in fundraising too. Like no, nobody, the other guy who she works with is probably very legit. Um, but like people want to invest in Kim Kardashian. That's the draw. I agree. Well, you know, it's a slow news week when we open the show with Kim K, <laughs> the Kim K yeah. private equity fund. Seriously, I love I love Kim. Seriously, proud Great. of her though. Honestly, started uh, basically flipped a sex tape into a multi billion dollar <laughs> private equity empire. Gotta respect that. Gotta I respect respect. the hell out of it. Um, yeah. No, the, the same people who are fading her are the same people who are like pissed at these like TikTok people that they make a hundred million bucks a year. It's like that's just the world we live in. Sorry. Middle, middle middle curve, middle curve, mm. real middle curve. Exactly. Seriously. Uh, dead dead middle. Um, all right, we are we are like one one week out from the ETH merge day, right? So that's going to be anywhere. I don't know if you guys have heard uh, at a definitive uh, a definitive time, but basically 13th through the 16th. So we're recording this on the eighth. Um, I guess there are kind of two angles that we could talk about on this. Um, uh, one maybe it's like a little bit longer term, like just structural changes post merge. Um, maybe we can talk a little bit about our friend Hal Press's real yield thesis, and I'd love to know how you guys kind of buy into that. But maybe we could talk. There's a lot of um, 
uh, I, I think people are kind of preparing for a little bit of chaos uh, post post merge, right? So we saw a governance proposal pass on Aave where they're basically temporarily pausing borrowing ETH because people are basically trying to get as much ETH as they can before the snapshot is taken. Uh, actually, before I get into it, um, me and Michael Advance, when do you want to get into like why that like what's going on, why the Aave thing happened, and then some of the like arbitrage mischief that might be might be happening around the merge. Yep. Um, on Twitter, I called it slippery business. I feel like there's a bunch of positioning that's happening right now, both in liquidity pools, but also people like the big players kind of like getting ready for what is a pre-planned but like chaotic event, which is like kind of where they thrive the, the most. Um, and so like there's a couple of things going on. If you look at the borrow utilization of these pools um, where the ETH is in them, uh, you know, those are skyrocketing. And so like, you know, I think the the utilization of the Aave pool last I checked was like 70% almost. Um, and that skyrockets the borrowing rates. So if you're still in there, you're paying, you know, 24% at this point. That was the last time I checked. And so that's like a very painful trade. Um, and, and that's happening. At the same time, you look at the, you know, spot liquidity pools, things like Steeth and ETH, um, really any place where ETH is in a, a smart contract people are pulling that out so that it's eligible for this airdrop, um, which is like funny because like, you know, they could have probably figured it out, uh, figured out a way to do this with all of these assets in the pools. But like, instead they've chosen to kind of like intentionally have everyone like pull their assets out and then like put Humpty Dumpty back together again after the merge. And so there's going to be all these like weird price disparate uh, kind of differences between the pools. Um, and yeah, like you look at the price of Steeth, it's like down to 0.95. You look at the price of Coinbase uh, staked ETH, it's like down to 0.91. Um, there's just a lot going on. And it'll be interesting to see kind of it pull apart, but also it come back together. Um, and at the end of the day, we've said this before, um, I don't think the proof of work chain is going to be, you know, very interesting at all. I don't think I don't think it's going to be a hugely you know profitable opportunity. I haven't checked, but I think the price is still like in the thirty dollar range. Uh, you know, at least the futures price of where where it's trading right now on on some of these platforms. I mean, you can use like the benchmark of ETH Classic versus ETH. You know, two to three percent historically is where ETH Classic has traded. But I think one of the bigger points to note uh, is kind of what Vance touched on last is just the fact that there's a lot of work that has to go in to make this chain live. There has to be a client that's live. There has to be miners that are ready to go. There has to be people who are going to continue to use it. There's already been tons of signaling from all the different platforms and, and providers already saying that they're not going to support it. And I I haven't seen any updates. In fact, there was something on Twitter that I saw that suggested that there was basically zero client work that has gone in. And maybe you've got the miners, but then you just got miners who are mining something and, and nobody can actually use it. So I, I, I probably pegged the chances of this, you know, greater than 50% not working and not being live for much, much you know, longer than it, it starts out as. Um, I don't know. I don't know if you guys have a different perspective, but I, I, I'm just not, I'm not very long ETH POW. It's tough to find someone who is, honestly. I'm, let me ask you guys this. Are you guys doing any of this, like, what do you call it, Vance? Like, cute business or whatever? Like, are you guys positioning cute business? it? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> slippery. Slippery business. I like Solid. yours, though. Cute business is nice. Cute business, yeah. Good, right? Like, are you, like, there are a couple things you can do, right? Like, you can pull ETH out of liquidity pools. You can sell your ETH for ETH. You can uh, unwrap your wrapped ETH. You can move your ETH off of an exchange and into, like, uh, like onto a ledger or something, because you don't know if the exchange is actually going to give you the proof of work token, if, if obviously it happens. So are you guys doing any of that? We can't really talk about the stuff that we have in flight. Um, what we can say is that uh, like we're not optimizing for getting more proof of work ETH. 
like that of the things that we could optimize for doesn't feel like the best uh, thing we could do. Um, we're certainly getting ready for it uh, in terms of uh, if you have any trades on in a liquidity pool that looks like it has this concentration risk, you know, like that, like the, the safest way to play this is just to be out of those. And so we're being mindful of that just from a safety perspective. But yeah, I mean, uh, the other side of it is like, you know, if you get these proof of work tokens, what do you do with them? Mm -hmm. um, like, are you sending them to like, uh, like where, like BitMEX, the futures like exchange? Um, are you sending it to um, like a DEX on the proof of work exchange? Mm -hmm. Like the mechanics of getting out of this are going to be very difficult. Um, and I think kind of the sleight of hand that makes these airdrops work for a lot of people uh, are a couple. Number one, the exchanges are not going to allow you to claim your proof of work ETH right out of the gate. Coinbase has said that. A number of other staking providers have said that in exchanges. So like, there's going to be kind of this artificial uh, supply limitation for people who are just holding ETH on exchange, which is the vast majority of ETH, um, at least that moves. Um, but the people who have it off of uh, you know, a main exchange, they're going to have to like make decisions on what to do with it. And I think those people will be advantaged uh, in a moment where there's not a lot of supply. So that's kind of like generally how we think it's going to break down. But we're certainly not optimizing for proof of work. Either. I think these airdrops are going to cause way more harm than they do good and like money because um, uh, there will be inevitably more than probably. You remember with Bitcoin in 20s, uh, what, 17, 2018, there were all these there were all these forks, right? It wasn't just like Bitcoin Cash. It was like Bitcoin Plus and Bitcoin like one and Bitcoin. Satoshi's vision. Satoshi's vision and like the segue to like all, all yeah. these. There's like 20 forks. And um, so, yeah, you get the airdrops and obviously you want to sell them immediately. There's going to be a bunch of scam airdrops too, though. So totally. probably inevitable. You end up like, let's say I get some POW. I want to sell it. Well, I'm going to have like seven other airdrops in there. And I'm going to, someone, you're going to, a lot of people are going to end up clicking those and just like giving right access to their wallets. Yeah. Be safe. Yeah. Don't, don't mess around with stuff that you don't know what it is. Um, and yeah, like we were, we were talking about this before we started recording, but the idea that, you know, like the amount of open interest on Deribit and hedging volume on FTX would suggest that like a lot of people are expecting this to be a very meaningful event from just like a raw value perspective. And like, you know, probably hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars are expected to be kind of like claimed and sold from this. Uh, that just seems so far out of the like, you know, realm of reality that I don't think that's possible. And the other thing is like this has been, you know, a multi-year process of kind of like not kicking the miners out of the ecosystem, but like just like diminishing their influence. And I think this is kind of like the cresting of that wave where, you know, they're going to kind of put up a fight for proof of work ETH, but that's really all they're going to get. And then it's going to be kind of like, you know, they get to do Bitcoin, but they don't have a lot of sway or influence over the rest of the ecosystem, which is really good in my opinion. I will say this is the most positive I've ever seen kind of like the mainstream media cover crypto is around the merge. Um, so I think that'll be pretty interesting. Like you're seeing a lot of articles maybe from like New York Times or CNN or something uh, from these like non-crypto uh, non pubs be like, this is a step in the right direction for Ethereum. They're moving towards a more environmentally friendly thing. So it's uh, it's actually been interesting to see the mainstream coverage of the merge. I think I think the big angle here too, just that mainstream loves to lash onto. Even today, I think uh, maybe it was Treasury or there was some announcement saying that uh, proof of work consensus mining algorithms are probably something that might have to get regulated. Uh, there, there was some note of that that I saw on Twitter this morning, and I, I think the ESG narrative is going to be an important one. Frankly, um, if if there's nothing else that 
anybody who's not aware and, and kind of uh, paying attention to this industry is going to be able to latch on to. It's going to be ESG because every single time I've I've heard you know these arguments, it's like, oh well, you know, NFTs they just they're destroying the planet. It's like well, that's absolutely not true, but. You know, okay, fine. We've got a solution for that, um, and and I think the fact that you can be able to now point to a solution is going to be a uh, a huge opportunity, and and latching onto that, I think, is what we need to do as an as a base layer Ethereum community. I I agree with that, but with the one caveat of so that that note, they didn't point to specifically like proof of work. It was just like energy intensive ways of you know it was there, but obviously that refers to proof of work. I would say though that it's always just been like from a just first principles thinking about it standpoint, it's a frustrating thing because it's not about the energy consumed, right? It's about the output and what you get for that energy. So I agree. I think it's going to be a big, powerful narrative, but I also don't love some of the other, like, especially like layer one blockchains, I feel like have been marketed as like, you know, uh, eco-friendly, which I don't love as a, I just don't like that as a, as a. Agreed. But, you know, for yeah. people who don't get it, it's going to be an easy narrative to latch onto. Yeah. Um, let's talk about another narrative, maybe post-merge, uh, post which is, um, again, credit to Hal Press, who really, I think, was the first one who brought this concept into crypto, real yield. Uh, so that's a concept uh, you know, that's very familiar to uh, you know, traditional finance when you're talking about the returns that you get from fixed income and bonds, right? So there's like the nominative yield of something, which is what you actually get paid, uh, and then you subtract out inflation, right? It's a more real representation of, of whether or not you maintain essentially purchasing power. Um, that I, I think Hal was kind of the one who outlined that and applied that concept to uh, Ethereum. I know you guys are kind of supporters or are kind of buying to this idea. Can you just explain like what does real yield mean in the concept of uh, the concept of ETH and how is that going to change post merge? Yeah. So really, what's happening right now is the there's an inflation rate that is being applied to Ethereum every single block. And um, I, I don't know the exact block number off the top of my head, but there's a, a number of Ethereum tokens that are created every single block, every 13 to 15 seconds. Um, what that leads to is an inflation rate of somewhere in the 3 to 4% right now. Um, and you can think of that as being the, the necessary component of the value ecosystem that goes to compensate the miners who are running these proof-of-work chains, as we just discussed, energy intensive, have to be able to subsidize the cost of running you know, massive uh, server farms, essentially, um, that suck up a lot of electricity, cost, money, et cetera, et cetera. Um, additionally, the hardware cost of, of actually running that. Um, what changes with proof of work, obviously, is you move from a proof of with proof of stake is that you move away from the proof of work. The amount of cost that goes into it drops. So therefore, the amount that you need to pay the security budget drops as well. Generally, the concept that Hal is talking about is this this change when you move uh, from a from a high inflationary rewarding mechanism to something that is actually potentially deflationary is really the the mechanism that he's talking about. So, you know, as a staker, uh, there's the possibility based on throughput that you actually ultimately end up having less Ethereum at the end of the year than you started. Um, so that that's one component of it. The other component of it is after EIP 1559, you have 80, 90% of the transaction fees being burned to increase the amount of deflation that's going on in the Ethereum network. Well, all of this leads to this component of what's the actual yield that you're getting. And his theory, which I think is accurate, is that the yield that you can get by staking a token is the inflationary is the total yield minus the inflation. And 
the total yield could be you know whatever it is post merge but when you have a reduction in inflation you increase the amount of total yield and we've seen a ton of other staking opportunities you know we've all seen them throughout the industry where you've got massive staking yield but that staking yield is being subsidized by inflationary rewards and it's it's just the the separation of the concept of what's real versus what's nominal. Um, I think that that's really kind of the key point to to hit on here. The the things that are like important to think about uh, when you think about ETH and real yield are kind of their uh, you know uh, counterparts in both the equity and bond world. So in the equity world, um, obviously you're getting paid you know for some stocks at least like for instance like Meta doesn't pay a dividend. Um, they have a stock buyback. Uh, and that's going to be probably, I think, like $40 billion this year. But they're also issuing, you know, $20, $25 billion of new stock per year. And so, like, you know, some of it's kind of like your ownership increasing, some of it's decreasing, but like Meta doesn't have a yield. So there really is like, it's apples to oranges there. And if you think about, you know, treasuries, like the 10-year or the two-year or, or whatever auctions they have going, it's, you know, the real yield of those treasuries, but they're selling more of those at auctions every single week. And so there is this concept in most other asset classes, but Ethereum is is the one that's the most unique because it's on a block by block basis. It's it's super transparent, but you also have the potential of this thing getting much larger in the future. Um, and so for a lot of people, I think like you know the real yield of whatever it is six seven percent is exciting, um, but I think the opportunity for that to be like a quasi venture bet as well is unique when you look at you know every other asset class and, and the dynamics of both supply and potential deflation. Mm. I, I guess, to, I mean, just to put it in like super simple bell curvy type languages, I mean, basically, if you think about it from the, the DAP kind of layer, the inflation, right, is basically, that's just customer acquisition costs, right? Cool. You're basically giving away ownership tokens of your your platform and you're generating something that looks like a yield from that. But if the inflation rate is higher than the yield that you generate, then you're owners or stakers of that platform are basically losing value on a year over year basis. Uh, and I guess, you know, one thing like one, I guess the good parts about bear markets in general is it's like, okay, there's less hype and excitement and just like FOMOing into stuff. So now it's the time to actually think about like generating real sustainable value. And that's Kane's whole kind of push with real fees as well. Exactly. But maybe, maybe to go back real quick, I think one component that's important here as well is, um, there's this there's obviously the concept of real and nominal yield and you know the the financial theoretic version of what your asset is worth versus you know the discounted cash flows versus you know the ownership percentage that you have and and what have you i think the other component that's really important to note here is that when you have inflationary yield and you're you're adding more assets to the tradable amount of assets that are in the ecosystem you know, it, it, to also take Hal's point is that the flows and the supply and demand of these assets fundamentally change as well. When you there are more inflationary rewards tokens, uh, sure you're earning those, and and maybe they're locked, maybe they're not locked, depending on the protocol. But if you're earning those tokens, eventually that just means that there's going to be more supply to sell. Uh, and, and so even if it's just you know theoretical um, on one end, I, I think there is a structural component to it, which is the flows. Can can you actually break that down a little bit exactly like which which part because like price is just a function of supply and demand in general right and flows kind of describe uh, more like the demand side of that so well I'm I'm actually not exactly sure I follow like how does the um, how does the flows kind of relate to what we're talking about here yeah so I, I think um, 
your point is is a good one in that the inflationary reward could be thought of as customer acquisition costs. And you need to have sort of a top sticker price to incentivize people to, to join an ecosystem, join a protocol, state, trade, whatever, whatever the incentive model is. And I think that that's important at the beginning in the same way that you know, Uber subsidized the car rides uh, in San Francisco here for a couple of years, at least when they started with UberX. I remember it was like 250 to go across the city. Um, yeah. And you can kind of think of it in the same way. Eventually, you have to get to a point where they're charging enough and their take rate is high enough to where Uber, the company, can make enough money. And in in terms of the flows, if you have consistently you know unit economic negative transactions going on, uh, you're going to ultimately end up losing money. And the way that that the way that that comes through is you're going to have more people. Additionally, you're going to have more people who have these assets who are going to be able to sell them on the market. Uh, and so it may it may look nice and and get users involved initially, but eventually it's going to be something that you have to move away from. Otherwise, you're not going to build a sustainable model. Yeah, yeah, I get you on that. It's kind of going from like a like a not like a deeply unprofitable tech company, but like a slightly unprofitable tech company yeah. to like a very profitable tech company and you know that's kind of the the structure that drives the flow because you know if ethereum was a tech company and it was you know deeply unprofitable and had no assets they're just basically selling more eth into the market to keep itself going mm -hmm. and now they're just stopping and so there's just less sellers um and there's less sellers by eighteen thousand eth per day which is meaningful like we we've talked about this before but like we think probably there's like a one to 25 ratio of, of, you know, fundamental flow to like quant flow. Mm. Um, and so that, that matters when you think about that in that context. You know, it's just funny to me about this whole discussion is, um, you know, ETH's been around for, you know, not like seven or whatever years now. Um, so it'd be very logical to be like, okay, this is the time in the, the life cycle of the company where you want to transition from being deeply unprofitable to like, we want to think from just growth at all costs to like unit economics, right? That's like a super traditional framework or way to think about it. I feel like if you pulled the rest of the world, like how risky ETH is and like where it should be in its life cycle, they would have a very different thought. So actually, in a way, this is almost like getting ahead of the curve here. Right. Uh, yes. Yes. But it's, it's not the same. You know, it, it's not like they're going through this process to become profitable. It, it, you know, mm -hmm. it, that would be how you look at something like an Uber who's looking to go public for, per se, who like needs to have positive unit economics so you can get, you know, the valuation for your next fundraiser, your IPO, whatever it is. The, the thing about Ethereum, which is unique, is that the technology is changing. This is a move in the positive direction for the protocol so that you can enable further developments like you know all, all the things that are on the scaling roadmap like sharding. A proof of stake network is a requirement to move in that direction. And, and so it's, it's both and in a really, really yeah. unique way where you have this implicit change in the unit economics, but you also have the positive direction of the technology. And that in the second point is actually leading the first, which is unique. Mm. Interesting. Do you um do you see the concept of real yield? Does that apply to like non L ones like ETH? Would you use a very similar framework to look at like a DAP or like a DAP chain or uh, you know it basically is basically can you kind of borrow that concept and apply it to non L ones? Couldn't you couldn't mm. you apply it to any to any app or protocol right? Any yeah. real yield? Yeah. Couldn't you apply it to non crypto things too? Or is this why? Like, I mean, Meltem tweeted that thing and then how was like, this is really dumb. But I think she was basically just saying you have the inflation rate, you have treasuries at 3%, inflation at 8%. So the real yields negative five. How was like, this is an incredibly dumb tweet. I don't know why, why I, I'm too middle of the bell curve to know why it was a dumb tweet, but 
Like, can't you apply this concept to anything? I, I didn't see the tweet, but the thing that's unique about L1s is that they have to pay for security. Um, and if they don't yeah. have that, you know, they're cooked. Um, when you think about dApps, like they don't have this like fundamental blockchain uh, security need, uh, at least they don't need to pay for it in their own native currency. And so they kind of are by default, like more profitable than your average L1, just because they don't have as many costs. Um, I think your L1 probably has your average all L1 probably has more users than your average dApp at this point. Mm. But I think that's going to change. Um, and yeah, I think it's always there's always been the question of like, okay, you cool, you have this dApp, what do you do with the inflation? Um, and those feel more like those decisions around what do you do with it feel more like, you know, uh, how do you spend your growth marketing budget at a tech company that's small to medium sized than like, how do you re-architect this new asset class, this new, you know, kind of technology paradigm? It's like in games, you know, in, in digital game ecosystems, you know, what it ultimately comes down to in in mobile in particular, but but somewhat web based as well, is that it comes down to LTV minus CAC, and and that lifetime value minus customer acquisition cost, and that is more of the equation I think when it talk when we're talking about DApps in particular to Vance's point, but ultimately we're getting to the same same conclusion here, which is you, you just have different variables flowing into LTV and different variables flowing into CAC, whether it's a DAP or it's base layer. Yeah, it, it follows that you're going to have a lot few, like, you know, in 10 years, you're going to have a lot fewer L1s that are profitable than you will dApps. Um, the dApps just have much less cost. It's much harder to get to the critical mass of users that's required to sustain an L1 from a security perspective. Um, and like, even look at Bitcoin, you know, it's huge, it has a ton of users, the market cap's gigantic. Right now, it doesn't have enough fees to secure its future long term. Um, and so... I think we're really going to see the consolidation around kind of like Kane's point, I think is particularly relevant to the DAP sector, but I think you're going to see the consolidation in the L1 sector as well, because like, you know, 20 years from now, like, let's just pick on like, you know, Harmony. Um, who's really going to be want to subsidize, like who's going to want to subsidize the cost of like running those validators? It's like non-trivial, um, especially if you're underwater on them. It's probably going to be like the foundation, the investors, that's probably it. Um, and a lot of them will shut down or just use ETH as a security layer as a result. That's my guess, at least. You guys see uh, CUE raised $300 million? Congrats, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. I think that concludes this section here. Let's talk about um, the, the Coinbase Institutional Maker partnership. Yeah, I know you, uh, you, we were talking about this before. You want to lead us through uh, what this is, what's going on? Yeah, give us a good description of it. Not a bad one. <laughs> Don't fuck this up. Uh, I mean, it's like it's it's pretty simple. Uh, Maker, so Maker has this thing called the PSM. There's like five point two billion dollars of USDC in the PSM. Uh, Coinbase uh, Prime, which is uh, their like institutional team, they bought Tagomi and created this institutional team, and that's Coinbase Prime now. Coinbase made a proposal for Maker to transfer thirty three percent of the USDC out of Maker's PSM. Uh, so that's $1.6 billion out of the PSM into Coinbase Prime's custody. Uh, the reason they would do this, the reason this is good for Maker is uh, this would give them 1.5% yield on that USDC. So 1.5% yield on $1.6 billion is $24 million. Uh, so that's 24 mil in additional revenue that Maker could be earning. Um, 
And that's that's kind of the yeah, that's the proposal. So one, one point of clarification, I think, uh, is like, what is the PSM, and basically, what is that USDC do? What is the USC, USDC doing right now? The USDC sits there and serve is acts as collateral for basically the Dai, and it earns. And the thought is that it earns no yield. So yeah, I mean, like. One of my pushbacks on the forum, I was like, 1.5% feels low. And they're like, well, until we have a better strategy, 1.5% is better than zero. So it's fair. Are there two buckets as well, Jason, for that USDC? There's the USDC, like protocol owned USDC, right? And then there are customer deposits. And this is only for the USDC that maker owns, right? Correct. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, if you look at like the, yeah, if you look at the balance sheet of Maker right now, it's like liability, like DAI is the liabilities and then the assets are the PSM and the user vault. So the PSM is like what is like the Maker owned assets and Maker can invest those assets. And that's like, you know, DAI is collateralized by by those assets. And then there's the user vaults and users own those assets uh, and, the, and the Maker protocol can't touch them. So basically have liabilities is DAI assets is the PSM and the user vaults. What this would say is that, so like on the asset side, you have two buckets, it's the PSM and the user vaults. This would kind of create like a third bucket. So you'd have die as the liabilities. And then the third bucket would be you have user vaults, the PSM, and then you have like what, <clears throat> what maker folks think of as like safe instruments. So this would be like things that generate yields, very small amount of yield, highly liquid, like liquid within a couple of minutes. Um, and that would be like, Short-term data this, treasuries, for example, like three-month T-bills. Yeah, I so yeah, yeah. I think the biggest, um, the biggest concern with this deal is like, where is Coinbase generating the yield? Um, because if they are, if they are doing something that feels safe, like kind of similar to T-bill investing, like that's probably fine. That's a good thing. Whatever. If it's something like unsecured lending to crypto market makers, that's probably not a good thing and i probably wouldn't vote for that so i think that's like i think that's the unanswered thing is where does coinbase generate this yield i mean maybe even like a a more umbrella question is like what's the benefit here to coinbase which is kind of the same same thing right what like how would they use this usdc how would they generate an an additional in addition to the 24 that they have in cost how would they make a a spread on that like yeah they they can it's like any bank it's like they can they give out one and a half percent and they're going to make more than one percent one and a half percent that's what uh, i was going to say it's like it any it's a bank you know right. Coinbase is a bank well it's net interest mark it's a net interest margin <laughs> business is what yeah. so they're making spread on that um vance you you know like i feel like the last time we played this game <laughs> we broke basically everything in crypto <laughs> <laughs> like i like i so i think it's it, there's always a question of what they're doing with this money um, and I hope they're just putting it into T-bills or like, you know, the 10-year, which is like yielding, you know, 3.4%. I hope they're not just like turning around and lending this on a like un or no collateral basis to funds. Uh, probably it's a mix like at the end of the day. But the reason I like uh, this proposal for makers specifically is because it helps its regulatory resilience. Like if, uh, if uh, Coinbase is holding all the USDC... And then the Treasury Department sanctions the PSM, the the maker, uh, like you know, contract apparatus. Uh, like you now have to kind of deal with Coinbase as well. Like that USDC came from Maker. Um, it just makes it gives at least you know Maker. Uh, it ropes Coinbase into their corner and makes them kind of play defense on their behalf. So I really do like that. Um, it's also kind of like a lightweight version of the. Uh, the Rune proposal that he put forward uh, two weeks ago. Like he's talking about like, you know, getting a bunch of ETH and going yield farming with it. Like this is like, all right, let's just send the USDC to Coinbase and generate 1.5%. So it feels like a decent middle ground. Yeah. Um, 
but again like maker maker has like this like i can't tell if it's really good or really bad governance where like it seems like a million things are happening at the same time and it's kind of like going in off in all these different directions like what part of like the phoenix you know max decentralization playbook is like sending all your usdc to coinbase um like yeah some of it feels a little bit conflicting. i was gonna say this feels like total at odds to rune's proposal based on that last yeah. point in general i mean th this is like literally the opposite direction which is let's go more in the put this stuff into centralized custodians and you know just one comment on on coinbase in general you know we use coinbase uh at framework and um you know they they are really upstanding in terms of you know their relationships with their uh, lenders and providers and uh, customers, partners. I, I would not be nearly as concerned with this type of lending as I would be something, you know, his, historically at least, like the Celsius stuff that has been unraveling. So I, I'm not nearly as concerned about, you know, us playing the same game again. Um, but this, I think the big point here is that this, and we're going to see how people view it, but this is in the total opposite direction to Rune's post in my mind. But isn't Rune's post? He's like, for the next three years, there's one, there's one North Star now. Accumulate as much ETH as humanly possible, and we can do things that like aren't as decentralized. Like bring on real world assets. Like do basically, basically my reading of Rune's thing, his updated one last week or two weeks ago, was like, do anything humanly possible to get as much crypto native collateral as possible, as much ETH as possible. Then in three years, we can like pull things back. Now, I don't think things will actually get pulled back in three years, but I think that's like the North star in, in his mind. So, yeah. and, and by the way, like USDC, like they're already using real world app. USDC is just a wrapper on yeah. T bills. So it's, uh, it's already like, you already have these T bills, you know, it'd be cool to have like T bills on chain or like 10 year notes on chain, like not synthetically. Cause that's like basically illegal, but you know, like a real representation of them. The problem that they're trying to solve here is like maker can't talk to the outside world. They need someone to do it on their behalf. Um, and like, I think that's a, a pretty profitable position for Coinbase to be in. Um, same with all of these other centralized exchanges, like just the amount of capital creation that's going to happen in crypto is going to be quite large. And then interfacing with the traditional world is going to be a big opportunity. Um, I think this is like a move that like fits with Rune's proposal. It's a very light version. But it gives them room to expand it where like, you know, what if they send Coinbase like a billion DAI in a year? You know, Coinbase now has to go out and defend DAI and, you know, in the same case as Tornado Cash, like go bankroll lawsuits. And like, you generally want the most finance player to be fighting the biggest battles. And that's certainly not Maker. And it certainly is Coinbase. And so I really like I, I agree, you know, to go back to this, uh, that it is a timing thing and it's not necessarily ultimately at odds with the rune post but to, to one of the things that vance kind of touched on but to bring it back is like who signs the legal agreement on behalf of maker like it's not like you're going to have you know a lending agreement with coinbase without some sort of legal agreement or some sort of agreement in general is every single maker holder expected to vote and like sign their name on the dotted line you know like there's this there's all, all the details of how you bridge digital you know on chain with something that's centralized off chain yeah that yet are yet to be discovered yeah i mean i think within these DAOs, i will say any any DAO you dig deep enough there's usually one or two people behind this so like you dig into this proposal and there's it's the growth team so there are teams at makers and they're like full-time employees who work on those teams uh and so like this was the growth team and specifically with on within the growth team there's i think it was this woman jen who on the growth team who like did this deal not very different than like a block work salesperson going out and selling 
Coinbase on like a sponsorship deal or something. You have a seller. No, you know? so. well, but, but it is very different in that you you have. I mean, this is like legal structure question. Yeah. I mean, like there's hybrid- one of the biggest one of the biggest DAOs out there, like one of the biggest DeFi protocols. We were we were going to sign a contract with them for something, and they were like, "We can't sign the contract because we're gonna we have to turn into like a C corp, and we're going through that process now." I was like, "Interesting." <laughs> <laughs> so wow not a DAO they're, a like, they're like no no, no we're, gonna, we're still gonna like keep our name like the X DAO but uh, we have this new idea for you well they're like it became C-Corp. they're like it became too big of an issue to sign contracts and like it was really preventing our growth so but I think that's that's right there and like this maker thing and all this 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 is the most important question in crypto right now like this is the biggest dichotomy is like the people who are basically saying like everything needs to stay super stay super decentralized like create censorship resistant platforms uh at the sacrifice and detriment of like maybe expanding your your market and and gaining market share and things like that and then the other folks are maybe saying like okay i'm a dow but like man my market share is 10 percent. i could be like 50 percent by the end of this bear if i just like centralized a little more created created permissioned pools and like created a c-corp and like those are very at odds with each other and you're seeing that pop up every single week all over the space this this also may be like more of a bear market phenomenon where like the 10 years yielding more than like basically all say, stable yeah. In crypto. yeah um yeah. so like you know yeah. in the bear market you see uh higher yields outside you see capital outflows but not really like i mean there have been a lot of stable fund redemptions but there's still a ton of them in the bear market you just see the opposite yeah. or in the bull market you see the opposite you see the capital flow in um and yeah, I mean, like in the bull market, Maker was not sending, <laughs> you know, USDC to Coinbase. No. Um, that's for sure. So some of these things can pass as well. You know, you stay in crypto long enough, you, you see, you know, the se- seasons change. I thought that was a funny uh, thing, like, because a year ago, everyone was talking about yield being the Trojan horse that was going to draw, you know, uh, you know, capital into crypto. And now the business model has essentially flipped into importing TradFi yields into crypto which is just like a funny, complete flipping of that narrative. But maybe that's just a temporary bear market thing because it makes sense. Like crypto's higher growth. It should have higher yields, yeah. I would think. Well, I mean, this goes back to real versus nominal yield. <laughs> How much of those yields uh, in <laughs> the bull market were real? Negative. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. But even but, in trad fights, like deeply negative real yields. So, yeah. By the way, they're putting this money into three-month T-bills, I think it is. Um, mm-hmm. The three-month T-bills at like 2.9%. So... Coinbase, like Coinbase, is basically that's a one point four percent spread that they're making. Fourteen million, whatever. Call it a day. Yeah. Call it a day. Not bad. Yeah. Do you guys think um, there was an article? Financial Times did an article a little while ago. Um, it was like the t- the title of the article was "Stablecoin Issuers Hold Eighty Billion Dollars Worth of Short Dated U.S. Government Debt," and they had this little chart of like the biggest holder of T bills. Uh, it was it was pretty funny to see. Like Circle was above. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway on that chart, which is pretty wild, (laughs) actually. Um, But uh, do you guys think that's a positive or a negative thing? Um, Because on the on the one hand, you know, I what I've kind of heard from analysts in the like guys like Jim Bianco has made this point that you know regulators start to be very worried when entities hold that many T bills because what they're worried about is a proverbial like run on the bank so to speak, right? What they're really worried about is like, uh, hey, like what if, you know, basically USDC faces a flood of redemptions and then you have to sell, you know, an enormous amount of uh, secure, uh, like treasuries, basically. And like, that's fine today. Even like 80 billion is like a lot, but 
it, look at how fast USDC expanded. Like that could be 500 billion or there are money market funds like a trillion, you know? Uh, so like, I think that's the, on the one hand, it could be like invite more regulation, but on the other hand, maybe it's like the US government just wakes up and is like, hey, we are planning on running a trillion dollar deficit for the next forever. Uh, and we need people to buy these bills. So like, this is actually kind of a convenient thing you know what i mean like i kind of see it going either way you can you can buy them but like if you need to sell them just like let us know because like, give us a little heads up. Yeah. like it's like oh you're concerned about this like high, high yielding asset and like everyone buying it in the underlying liquidity like sounds kind of familiar yeah um and, like, i don't think this is like a problem in the next you know 10 years but i don't know seeing this year where bonds had their worst year since literally the civil war in the u.s yeah you're like, okay, cool. If this pillar goes, like, what else are we investing in? Just like stocks and crypto? Like, how does this work? Yeah. It's kind of remarkable how little of this has been kind of like thought out and planned, especially within the context of like massive trade deficits, interest rates rising, and just like QT nuking the liquidity in treasury markets. I don't know. Like, seems like you probably want more people to buy them. And if they need to sell them, like, you should probably figure out a way to interface with them instead of just like holding them at arm's length and like, not allowing them to touch the traditional financial system because like selling 80 billion of spot, you know, T bills. I don't know how that goes down. Probably not that smoothly if you need to do it. I, I think that last point's the, the, the best one in that uh, they're now forced to take you seriously. You, you have yeah. to be someone that they want and need to do business with. And so because of that, they can't stamp you out there. There's existential threats to them if they were to do something draconian and and onerous and and so i think there's that but then you know you, you get taken seriously and and everybody's always talking about like oh no regulation it's going to be terrible like we're going to kill the industry bad regulation will kill the industry good regulation could make the industry and mm -hmm. and i think that that's where we really need to actually like be sensible in in terms of you know, it's not a, it's not a black and white situation, and like for this industry to grow, as we've seen over the last few months, like certain things should have been regulated, probably. Um, and uh, I, I think we should be at least willing to welcome that if if we want to see this thing grow to the size that we, I think we all do. Side note on regulation, um, I actually I was listening to this this podcast called Acquired. I don't know if you guys have ever listened. It's a great great podcast. They did this episode on Standard Oil, which everyone should go back and listen to it's a phenomenal story but one thing that blew my mind was you know when he was when john rockefeller was doing this back in you know late 1870s 1880s it was actually illegal to do business in multiple states you know that how <laughs> wild is that so they got around it by doing this thing they had like a trust and they were like oh yeah there's going to be a trust and there are trustees and the trustees leveraged something called a joint stock company which like no one had leveraged in the 200 years since it got created. And like they did all of these things uh, that were very like, not technically in the spirit of the law, but they found this weird, and they had to act, and they, you know, they took pains to like make it seem like they were not directors, right, of this big thing. Just reminded me um, very much of like, how DAOs are like bending over backwards to not, you know, to appear like they're operating in a different way than they might actually be today. And eventually the, uh, you know, they broke up Standard Oil, but then he basically wrote the playbook for what the modern day corporation looks like. So he was kind of right at the end of the day, but there was some friction in between getting from point A to point B. I mean, the, there's so many funny cases of this over time. Like cryptography used to be uh, regarded as like a like a weapon. And like, you know, we have people on our team who instead of like sending their cryptography over the internet back in the day, they would, you know, print it out and fax it because that was like how you could like communicate your work with other people. Yeah. Um, it was illegal to do commerce on the internet. 
until the late 90s. Um, like there are all these bills and all these pieces of regulation that made the internet and cryptography possible. And like, this is probably, you know, a good segue to the the kind of like tornado cash uh, sanctions. Like this is always how it was going to happen uh, or the tornado cash lawsuit. Like this is always how it was going to happen. Like something was going to be bad or the administration would regard it as bad. We would fight it with a lawsuit. And, you know, win or lose, like we're going to have more clarity. And I think like I would put more odds on the winning side, but that's how we kind of move the industry forward. Like it, it's unfortunate that it has to be at the cost of like people in jail and stuff like that. But like these are the battles that are kind of necessary to fight in order to push the space forward. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think the one thing that people almost like treat as a constant um, or like never consider the fact that actually crypto could get so big that we just change a lot of the existing regulation. And the way that we think and that's like i know that sounds a little extreme but that's like kind of my base case you know there's a lot of stuff that i think if people like really sat down and thought about it like that doesn't make a whole lot of sense the way we do kyc there are all these studies about how inefficient it really is right i think um you know actually after this this you know this sell-off in the beginning of this year you look at where a lot of like tech giant like huge success stories like twitter and snapchat and pinterest like where they ipo'd versus where they're at today it's like level or down it's nuts. So it's like all of that value got created in the private markets. And I I just don't think that's fair to be excluding people from, frankly. Like, I think that changes. Philosophically agree with you. Uh, I mean, I, I think even Brian Armstrong from Coinbase said, uh, and he's been a, a, over the course of at least the last four or five years, he's always said, uh, we have the rule book. We should just operate in the confines of the rule book. In the last couple of years or in the last year in particular, I think he's he's totally changed his tone. Um, you know, we yeah. probably need new rules. I don't know if it means we need a new regulator, but you can't put square pegs into round holes consistently when we're dealing with regulations and, and laws that existed decades or potentially even centuries ago, uh, you know, we're talking about a new asset class that existed less than 10 years ago in, in earnest. Yeah. Like like the, the financial security apparatus is basically transitioned to the spectrum of like safety or opportunity. And there is like some truth to the meme of like, you know, you'll eat the bugs and you'll watch the Netflix and like, you know, but at least you'll be safe. Um, and your life may not go anywhere, but like, you know, you're going to be super safe. Um, on the other side of that spectrum is like, it's kind of open, you know, there's more opportunity, there's more danger, you know, you might not be as safe. And like, we've gone so far over to the side of like safety and, you know, eating the bugs that I'm, I'm hopeful that there's, you know, a pendulum swing uh, in the process. But, you know, a lot of this is post 9-11 Patriot Act. Yeah. And that's not going anywhere. Uh, the, that's definitely not going anywhere. But, you know, one last thought here is, you know, if, if you just look at DeFi and you say, okay, composability, Tra uh, transparency and global access are, are probably the the three biggest components tenants of, of what makes DeFi powerful or the, or the promise of DeFi. You can maintain basically all of that in the same structure as financial services exist today, and have the advantages that make it such that you know I, I truly believe that DeFi will ultimately be on the right side of regulatory history here because it provides a better system for what financial services should enable, right? You know, if, if you have transpa transparency, you know, the role of financial oversight is to monitor and guard and protect against, you know, opaque financial institutions. Well, if you go, get rid of the opacity and you add transparency, that's a huge advantage. And I, I think there's very few people outside of this industry that get that right now. I've got one closing question just to bring it back to Maker, and then we can move on to, because I want to talk about uh, Binance and their BUSD, their stable. Um, but what is the, you know, from a first principle standpoint, what, 
why would someone own and hold DAI? I suppose uh, if it really is something that's just backed by USDC, then isn't it just kind of USDC with extra steps? Like, what's the first principles reason for why DAI should exist if we go on this route? Uh, it's cheaper. Um, in terms of if you're like DAI is mostly a stablecoin that uh, has a utility uh, for lending mm. and borrowing. You know, like you get DAI, it's cheaper than Aave, it's cheaper than the centralized desks. Uh, so check. Um, there's no uh, receipt token. So like in the US, there's this weird thing where like if you get a receipt token, potentially that's like a taxable event. Um, with Maker, there is no receipt token. And so that isn't, you know, you're just getting the stablecoin against it. And so like that gives people marginally more uh, confidence. Um, other than that, you know, they're kind of apples to apples. Like we yeah. kind of most interact with USDC. Um, and I think there's also like additional risk of like, you know, the roadmap for USDC is pretty clear. The roadmap for Maker is like a million different things on, a, you know, any given day. So yeah, especially if it, stop, if it stops being not pegged to the or pegged to the dollar, like at least we would think differently about putting assets there. I'd like to give a shout out to Jeremy Allaire. Jeremy Allaire, like is i remember Margin. do you remember Margin. in 2018 yeah. it was like they were the darling remember goldman invested in them they had they had poloniex they had like all these different businesses and then it was like they're on the down there was the sheet that got passed around their 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 like private stock was trading at like 85 percent discount or something and they just went all in on this one thing and absolutely crushed it so shout out to them legends and cms came out of there well, they had one, they had one know, of the Daniel. biggest prop yeah they had one of the biggest prop otc desks they had the they yeah. had the like uh, a competitive app to Coinbase, like a great retail wallet too. Yeah. Bought Poloniex or, uh, or no, so bought Poloniex, sold Poloniex. Yeah. I bought it and, sold. and then sold. sold. Yeah. They rented Legend. it. They rented, they rented it. Poloniex. Yeah. <laughs> Flipped it. Yeah. Yeah. The, the other interesting thing that I've, I've seen from Circle uh, past like, you know, a couple hours, Jeremy Allaire kind of like teasing that like maybe USDC gets into the bridge game. So smart. Where it's, so smart. it's so smart, right? Like you just have like the, on either side of the bridge, you can just like mint USDC and burn it on the other yeah. one. Um, That's such a no brainer and such an improvement like on it. what exists. Like it's, it's inevitable that Coinbase or Circle or someone gets into the bridging space, I think. I like it. I think Circle is going to be, you know, a really awesome company. I do worry about like the amount of control that they're getting over the space. Like if they're dictating our fork choice and also like our bridge choice, yeah. like at some point, you know, they're going to be kind of like the financial security apparatus themselves. Mm. And yeah, I just, I, there's a, there's a, like the, the line they're walking is so thin. <laughs> it's like, you know, like half TradFi half the time, like the other half, like your DeFi. Only Jeremy Allaire could really do that. I don't, I think uh, just from a higher level perspective, like I think, um, I don't think that crypto ever gets enormous and successful without at least like the tacit, if begrudging approval of the United States. Like I do, I do think it's important to, I think you have to build, uh, you should be building like censorship resistant architecture and everything, but we live in a world, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not ready to like live hundred percent in the bits, like. I don't know. When I take my, like, when I leave this podcast, like, I'm going to be in New York, you know, like I, you know, so I don't, I don't know. I, I hear, I hear these arguments and I agree with them on a first principles level, but it's also like, I'm a citizen of the US too. And like, I don't believe they're evil. And I think if we build, if we, um, I, I really like the framework of like being big enough and like owning enough treasuries and like, Hey, like we're a force to be reckoned with, like, take us seriously. And by the way, like, we're going to kind of do things how we want. 
Is that cool? I, I, I'm not 100% sure we ever get to the full cypherpunk vision of like entirely. Uh, I just don't see a really uh, a roadmap for doing that. Basically. Yeah, but, my, but Mike, this year in the Bahamas, right now in the Bahamas is super nice. <laughs> That's true, dude. That's true. Yeah, what, what, if, what if that vision only works in the Bahamas? You know, that's not the end of the world either, I guess. I guess that's not. I'm, I'm a believer in the crypto cypherpunk uh, vision of the future. I think it needs to be both. Um, but I think like, you know, if ETH, you know, had gone to 10K at the time uh, of last bull market with the amount of value locked in DeFi, and even if it does in the future, that's more than a trillion dollars of value locked in DeFi. Like at some point, you just got to call a win a win. Like we don't need to be like a, a hundred trillion dollar asset class to be like, you know, considered successful we can do it because the assets themselves have value and they're experiencing this like exponential move in their prices every few years and people use it as money. Like, you know, we, we kind of do need them. We kind of don't need them. I think we can pick our battles, but over the long term, um, I think the biggest outcome is integration. Uh, and I mean, I would say probably the, the, the best entrepreneurs that we see that are building, at least starting in the, in the U.S., are basically ready at a moment's notice to pack up and move. And it's just kind of that mentality that you have to have right now because I, I don't think you could possibly – I mean, I, I'm sure you could come up with one, but it's it's hard to imagine a, a more um, uh, aggressive and uh, detracting regulatory environment in the US right now for crypto or anything related to crypto. Um, and, in, and in a lot of ways, rightfully so, especially what's happened over the last couple of months with centralized crypto lending in particular. But that's that's one bad apple, one bad case, um, and it and doesn't represent the entire industry. So uh, right now, you kind of have to, but and and that's where this like crypto punk version of the future has to has to exist because that's right now kind of the only logical and, and viable one. Uh, but eventually, if we want an order of magnitude higher than what we're talking about, or, or multiple orders of magnitude larger, it's going to have to be something that that threads the needle between the two. Let's um, uh, I want to get your guys' view on Binance, and then just kind of like the stablecoin space, like writ large. Uh, we haven't really, I don't think we've talked on the show about uh, like DeFi protocols launching their own stables, but uh, just to give you an overview of what happened to, uh, this week. So starting September 29th, Binance is automatically converting USDC, USDP, and TUSD stablecoin balances uh, into new uh, Binance, you know, BUSD deposits at a ratio of one to one. Uh, they said this is to enhance liquidity and capital efficiency for users. Uh, basically, if you're a user of Binance, you'll still be able to withdraw uh, from your, you know, chosen centralized stablecoin, but the amount is just going to be uh, deducted from your BUSD balance. Um, uh, notably, can you, can, you the, can you throw the volume of these pairs up, or just like CoinGecko, you know, Binance, see their biggest markets? I mean, on the surface, uh, I know that this kind of got you know negative feedback, and I actually had a couple of people text me and be like, "Hey, are you worried about USDC? Like, it seems like it's being delisted from Binance." I don't actually read that as being the case here. Like, I actually think this is a really positive thing because it you know it basically unifies all the all the trading pairs within Binance against the single asset, which is BUSD. So you don't have the fragmentation, which I think I'm sure we're going to see here in a minute. Um, and you're still yeah. able to use, you know, deposit and withdraw all the different stable coins or just, you know, on on the platform represented as a different asset. Seems seems like a positive move. Mm -hmm. Yep. I mean, two thoughts. The first one is Tether is just like getting taken to the cleaners. Um, you know, that like Tether was always kind of like the Asia stable coin. 
uh, and like where what you would trade on Binance when you traded on Binance. BUSD was kind of always this thing where you'd be like, eh, like I can use that. Maybe I'll get a reduction fees, but like generally didn't really care about it. Tether is like probably in danger from this um, in a significant way. And my second thought is like, this doesn't really matter for USD. My third thought is like, the ecosystems are fragmenting, right? Like Western Phi is like USDC, like Asia CZ Phi is like BUSD and Tether is kind of like in no man's land. Um, but yeah, the ecosystem is fragmenting and this is kind of like one thing that just solidifies that. Here's a weird aspect of this is that BUSD is just white labeled USDP or PUSD, basically Paxos is stablecoin. So Binance's stablecoin is just white labeled Paxos stablecoin, which is actually the most regulated stablecoin. So it's the only stablecoin that's regulated by the NYDFS or something. Like it's got all the regulations because Paxos is deep in with, with the regulators. Um, mm-hmm. So like, you know, I feel like Binance is usually kind of uh, a little maybe plays it fast and loose with the regulators, but their but their stablecoin is actually just this white labeled like highly regulated stablecoin. It's pretty interesting. It's regulated by NYDFS was like one of the first stable coins to get their yeah. approval. When that happened, I was like, what the hell is going on? But it makes sense now. I didn't know about the, the Paxos. Yeah. I met someone from Paxos at a like unrelated like dinner party thing the other day. And, you know, whenever I meet someone from crypto, I was like, oh, Paxos. I was like, hey, man, like what's going on? Like good to hear it. Like meet someone else who works in crypto. He's like, crypto? No. Blockchain. I was like, yikes. Yikes. <laughs> yikes. Flashback to, 20, yeah, right, to 2017. <laughs> I was like, yo, is everything good at Paxos? <laughs> like, um, <laughs> raging indictment uh, right there. Man, this might be like a, a 3D chess move to move on, on shore um, for CZ with Binance. And I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's some interesting tricks up, up some sleeves. Yeah, I, I guess I just listened to this podcast on John Rockefeller. So I'm seeing the whole world through the lens of standard oil. Binance is just like this whale that is still just gigantic. Like if you just look at volumes, uh, across, like, dude, everyone's like, oh, it's Sam Bankman, Fried FT. No, dude, no one's even like close to what Binance is doing. And you don't see him on the cover of like magazines and all that shit. Um, the last 12 months have been the Sam show. I don't, I don't think, you know, there's a reason why we haven't heard too much from CZ, but I, I think we undoubtedly will hear a lot from him soon. Yeah, there's like, you, you'll be in like a random city and you'll like turn around and it's just like Sam's face like right in front of you <laughs> on like a gigantic billboard or painted on a wall. It's He's like everywhere. But I think uh, long term, those feel like the two that are going to be very competitive with each other. And I think it's going to be awesome to watch them kind of like try to like maneuver each yeah. other. Uh I think both have kind of like strategic mistakes uh, recently. Like, where's FTX staked ETH product? Where's Binance's? Or I guess Binance probably has something, but like isn't quite scaled yet. Um, where's FTX's stablecoin? Is it coming? Like, you know, there's a lot of stuff that FTX needs to do to, to even make it dent in Binance. Um, yeah, it's a bit more of like an optical illusion at this point. Mm. I've got an I've got an open question uh, for maybe you guys know the answer to this actually, but when um, when Coinbase had their earnings, a little, you know, because the narrative that Brian is trying to push, right, is that we're transitioning away from this transaction-based business where, uh, you know, the spread that we take is going to fall over a period of time to something that's more like, a, you know, they've rolled out something like a subscription. But really, they had this like $150 million line item on their quarterly top line, which was like, I forget what they called it, like services or something like that. And it basically, the you know, they didn't actually detail what this was, but I think that's the income that they're generating from their 
uh, like e staking, like e staking that you can do on the platform. But I can I have a lot of trouble backing into that number actually, hmm. uh, because you can see how much ETH they have, uh, and it doesn't really make sense. And I remember that they bought Bison Trails a little while ago, and Bison Trails does, uh, you know, they're like the back end for like Kraken's staked ETH product, right? The the ETH that you stake on. Kraken bison trails is the back end for Kraken staked ETH. Are you sure? I'm not, about that? I'm not sure that that's correct. No no, bison... no, 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 staked. Staked is the back end for Kraken. Exactly. Because Kraken acquired mm. staked. Yeah. But that was post. But remember, that was post. They already had a staked product at that time. They are, they bought staked mm. and they integrated it into something. And I'm pretty sure that Bison Trails is. Interesting. It does it doesn't matter. Yeah. The the point the point being maybe someone can help explain what that line item is because there was also this uh expense cost that was like associated with that revenue which basically mm. outweighed Sam Bankman Fried thus in a psyop, you know, like basically pointed this out to everyone and no one no one really cottoned on to it, but he was basically like, "Hey, that 150 million of that revenue that they generated, here's 150 million dollar expense that's not <laughs> associated that's not associated with anything uh yeah so um if anyone could explain uh anyone who has any knowledge i'd be very curious for because i had a lot of trouble backing into that that line Uh, i mean i I think one you know i i don't have the answer off the top of my head but um uh, or nor do i have any information about it but I, i think it is interesting to think about the transition that coinbase is about to go through and thinking through where their long-term strategic value is going to be derived from, I'm hard-pressed to see it anywhere other than staking uh, and kind of the services that you could get from staking and having assets on-chain uh, or having assets on, on the platform. Um, and I know that they've started to roll out CBETH. Um, you know, there, there's discussion around them having sort of an institutional product as well. Um, I, I would, uh, I, I think, you know, staking is going to become really the dominant factor here and they bought Bison Trails, Coinbase Cloud. Um, you know, th- there's a lot of opportunity here for them to move in the services uh, and sustainable revenue direction in lieu of transaction fees. I think. Have you guys heard of Alluvial? We have. We have. Yeah. So they have that whole partnership, right? That they were supposed to be, and like they just kind of rolled out their own alternative to Alluvial, which is like CB ETH. Um, well, I, I I think there is sort of a, a distinction here. Um, I believe CBETH is taking 25% of the rewards, and that mm-hmm. is sort of the cut that you can expect if you're using CBETH. Probably something that is fine for retail to get that CB moniker on your on your ETH. Probably not something that's going to fly for institutions. I, I wouldn't yeah. be surprised if they're two separate products. Interesting. Okay, cool. Before we move on from uh, FTX or <clears throat> Binance, let me show you guys the traffic differences for the two companies, just to show you, like, this is their web traffic. So this is last month. Binance had 90 million visits. FTX had 11 million, which is actually really impressive for FTX. Um, Yeah, that's impressive. It's it's actually higher than I thought it would be. 17 million unique visitors, which is just nuts. Um, FTX had two, right? Like if you look at the geography, I bet actually if you add Coinbase, I bet Coinbase would be in the lead in the US. And then, yeah, let's see. Yeah, like here's so here's here's Coinbase's business, yeah. just the US, right? And then actually FTX is bigger than Coinbase in Russia, Turkey, Argentina, Ukraine, everywhere else. But Binance has a 90% market share. So I mean, it just goes to show you like 
you you can't you can't like just advertise your way to having like a global brand you know you can get tom brady you can get matt damon you can get you know whoever you want but you know the time in the market and just like your first mover advantage and compounding that and like the you know every single time coinbase is mentioned on cnbc like 10 other people hear about it it's it's uh yeah i mean i think these are how the rankings are going to stay probably oh my god um, look at this number. Doesn't feel <laughs> coin market cap wow. 140 million last month. So keep in mind, right? Remember, Binance owns them. So right. I mean, all of the like, all of these like thinking about coin market cap versus Binance. Coin market cap, you go, you check on the website, you see the prices. These days, you just usually immediately exit. Um, <laughs> Binance, it's like you're just like you're going there. You're logging into your account. You're placing a trade. Yeah. Like the fact that they have seventy five percent of the volume of Coin Market Cap is wild. It's such like a more engaged project that product that I would have expected that to be much lower than Coin Market. Yeah, I will say that you can buy your way to success. And FTX is I was going to actually say that too. FTX is I, by all yeah. measures like pretty freaking successful for how new they've come onto the scene. Yeah. I would say. Uh, totally. But what what are they like? I. I I think FTX is going to be super successful. It's a question of like, what do you do now that you've done all the things? Like, do you have Tom Brady like jump through a hoop on fire on like yeah, an FTX sign for like, twenty oh. seconds? <laughs> I cannot hear that. Full make out, baby. Kiss me like a man. <laughs> We're definitely keeping all of this. Yeah. Um, I, I hear you though. I agree. I'm yeah. not, you know what actually I think is also interesting to draw a distinction between the type of marketing that you can do as like a CFI, uh, as a CFI company in crypto versus like what would work in for like a protocol. You know, like we talked about, like I think one of the criticisms of like yield farming as a customer acquisition strategy is that it's really expensive. But I would argue there's like, you couldn't have translated that into just dollars to spend and advertised and like got companies to where they were, right? Like the Uniswap airdrop, it's like people love to be like, oh, it's like $150 million or whatever. If they had spent $150 million on advertising, what would that have done? Nothing. Like, uh, I just don't think it's even possible. You just hit the nail on the head of the the network effects that are derived from tokens. Mm. That's the power right there. It makes sense. Though. It makes sense though. Like equity is much more expensive than dollars. Mm -hmm. um, so like, it's not, it's kind of like, you probably spent like, you know, a billion on these airdrops versus like the 150 million cash equivalent. Um, yeah. I, I think one thing just to kind of tie some of the previous points together, one thing that will differentiate between the three, you know, Coinbase, FTX, Binance going forward is product differentiation. If you have the ability to have certain assets, certain products that others don't, in certain geographies, that will be a distinct advantage. And now they're all three large enough to have enough captive audience to be able to have something that scales. Like, let's say you can start trading options on securities on FTX US. Like, I don't, I don't know if that's in the market in the in the roadmap, but like, let's just say like you can do that, right? That changes the dynamic of FTX because like all the people who potentially want Robinhood access now just go to FTX because you can get a better service, better product there. Like that, I think is the differentiating part going forward. But if you if you really break it down, who's going to be best positioned to be able to go after these opportunities? Is it the one that's based in the the regulatory un unfriendly U.S. and trying to work with regulators, or the one that's based offshore that has the mm -hmm. ability to operate freely and or not freely, but a little bit more freely? You know, like there's a distinct advantage. You know what else was a, a telling? Um, I thought it was very interesting the way that BlockFi versus Celsius got treated 
by regulators like celsius like this is this is supposed to be the strategy right like you if you do everything by the book then the regulator should you know if if you're sitting down and like being a strategy for this then the regulator should call you be like hey seems like you guys are putting in best effort like we don't really get this space like what should the rules be and like you would ideally be able to help influence what those rules are and it seems like blockfi was basically trying to take that tack and strategy and do everything by the book and celsius was just kind of like YOLOing into YOLO, like no pretense of being, you know, regulated or doing anything by the books whatsoever. And how did it work out for those two strategies? BlockFi got $100 million slap on the wrist, which was actually a huge deal for them at a time when they really probably needed that money. Um, I guess Celsius blew up because it was Celsius, <laughs> but like, you know what I mean? They kind of got punished for doing the right thing, so to speak. So what's the incentive? <laughs> BlockFi wishes they had that $100 million. <laughs> I mean, yeah. uh, you know, this doesn't always apply, but sometimes it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. I know we're, I know we've been doing this for a while. Uh, I want, can we, I want to get you guys to take on the so rare thing. Can we oh, talk yeah. about that? Yes. Oh man. Let's bring it back to the pre-framework days. Uh, so context, uh, for those that maybe don't know, Vance and I, prior to starting framework, started an NFT platform called Hashleets that uh, I think was the first license, first major IP rights holder for a blockchain-based digital collectible. Um, we yep. signed a contract with the NFL PA and had uh, digital collectibles, NFTs representing uh, NFL players in 2018 and 2019. Um, I'd say there's a lot of lessons from that experience, which we don't need to get into here. One of them is the IP rights process. And what happened this week, which is hilarious, you know, that everybody seems so surprised by it. Um, so rare, who's been historically an EPL, uh, English Premier League focused platform for their NFT platform, uh, started to get into uh, the NBA and taking some share and, and some uh, uh, of the IP, uh, probably IP value, let's say, from uh, other existing NBA partners. Um, and, you know, this is exactly how the IP rights usually play out. And, you know, we've, we've saw this firsthand with the way that our deal was struck. There were multiple players, um, multiple deals that, that were made. We were the only one that ended up signing it. And historically, the way that it works is you have multiple rights holders for the same category, usually in the like three to five range, but not more than that. And then over time, they whittle it down and eventually have an exclusive contract. Um, and, and so this is, I think, just um, at least from our experience, what we would have expected to happen exactly is the way that it did. Um, but unfortunate for those that had assets on other platforms that they thought they had exclusivity. Yeah. It's uh, if you're a user and you think about like the physical cards, like the tops cards, the baseball cards versus the Panini baseball cards. Um, you know, there's a chance that in 10 years, uh, maybe Panini doesn't, and they're one of the cards companies or maybe tops doesn't review their license. Great news, you still got the physical card sitting in your shoebox. You know, it probably gets more valuable because it's been discontinued. If you have the NFT, they don't have the rights to those pictures anymore, those colors, those players, mm -hmm. all of the on field photography. Like, those just have to go to zero and you have to make the cards blank. And so, you know, it feels like the legacy IP holders and like the decentralized collectible movement are just like fundamentally at odds because one party just doesn't really get it. And I think there's good reason, right? Like you don't want to just like license your IP in perpetuity to somebody. Um, and so I think that's the reason that, you know, 
all of the IP that we think is the most valuable has to be created by people that are, you know, in crypto, a startup, you know, like a larger company. But that's where all the interesting long-term stuff is going to come from. Like the crypto punks. Nobody's ever going to tell you that you don't own your crypto punk again. That's the difference. Hmm. I have a, just because I guess this is coming to the forefront in like a whole bunch of ways, just talking about IP. If you guys had to like divide out value creation in between like the IP itself and then all of the work that goes into propagating the IP, right? So like building an infrastructure like to invest in and buy more IP, distribute that IP, whatever. Like how would you break out the value there? I guess, what do you mean by that example? The, po- the point I'm trying to get at is a lot of the, I guess what I'm, what I'm thinking about is, um, I guess what I'm thinking a lot about recently is like pseudo swap. So pseudo did their token. I, we don't need to like talk about it. It's not important, but like it is this whole narrative right now of like, uh, you know, is our NFTs JPEGs with, or like altcoins with pictures, or is this like a new way for artists to like monetize their IP? And, uh, I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding. Like IP is really important, like the stuff that you create, but then there's an enormous amount of work and value that gets created by like investing in building new IP and then distributing that IP. And I think a lot of the argument that's taking place right now is just based off of a lack of understanding of the work that goes into curating, investing in and building new IP basically. Uh, So that's why I was kind of trying to get your sense of like, like, let's say you're trying to value Disney as a business. Like, how much is their IP portfolio versus the infrastructure that goes around that IP that you make a park right out of the idea of Mickey Mouse, basically? If you think about like uh, like the physical baseball card market, for instance, um, the value is divided into two pieces. There's the value creation, all the stuff that happens on the field with the players, their popularity, the sports popularity, and then there's the distribution, which is Basically, Panini and Tops have relationships with all the card expos and all the card trading shops. And like the NFL and the NBA and the MLB are not set up to do that. They don't want to do that. And so like all of the value, like the value is kind of like mostly created on the field, but like there's a substantial chunk of it that sits with the distributors. Mm. In crypto, the distributors basically have no value. Mm. Um, You have a bilateral connection with your user. I can send them tokens. I can send them NFTs. I can message them. There is nobody that can shut off my access to that person if I'm a brand. And so like, that's why NFTs in my mind are able to charge, you know, and give back to the artist such a large percentage is because like the distributors have just been cut out. Um, And, you know, like, do I think PseudoSwap is like, you know, an anthema to like the NFT movement? Kind of like, you know, the whole the whole idea is like enough value should be created and captured by the creator to give them some sort of share. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised to see other markets that are more vertical kind of like take a hard stance on this in terms of opinion and just try to like curate folks that really respect and want that both from the artist and customer side. I'll kind of take maybe a slightly separate perspective or different perspective in that you have gotten rid of the distributors or frankly, like the base layer blockchains are now the distributors and the users pay for them directly. So like, get that out of the the value chain. But what has changed is you've basically shifted all of that towards what's what's the utility of these assets. You know, in, in the case of So Rare, you know, they built this game and they're building more games and and supposedly you're gonna be able to use these NF these NBA NFTs in the games that they're building. That was also the case for us with Hashley. So we built like a fantasy football game that you could collect and, and buy, sell, and trade these these NFTs so that you could play them uh, and win more in in the game. I, I think you kind of have to shift from just having these be static 
collectibles that either increase or decrease in value over time to being something that has to have its value derived basically from pure utility. And utility comes from like the software that the NFT has itself, the creator's ability to integrate it into applications that they build, or basically the the potential to have integrations outside of the ecosystem. And so, you know, the the portability or the um, the overlapping of other applications, I think, is an important one. But it does shift. It's not necessarily the supplier. It's it's more of like it's more of the functionality that is Im- imbued within the NFT that drives the value. Yeah. I don't have much to add to this. Does anyone have plays of the week? Tweets of the week? Memes of the week? Memes of the week? I have a meme. I created uh, it while we were I, I, went, I went silent for like 10 you minutes. made it? Because I was creating a meme. Yeah. Hold on. How'd we do? Kim the goat. Kim the goat. <laughs> a lot of text on this one. A lot of text. Too much text for the meme. Yeah. <laughs> so accurate though. I like it. I like it. I'm trying to think of other. I, I was uh, trying to fit some like middle of the bell curve uh, meme in there. There was also, um, Let's see. did you guys see uh, this hilarious video? This guy, Sawhill Bloom, tweeted this video of um, the first astronauts, the outtakes of the astronauts. Do you see this? No. This was amazing. This is outtakes of NASA astronauts trying to walk on the moon. Oh, I've seen this before, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's sick. It's so good. It's so good. I thought uh, the moon landing was faked. I thought this was a Stanley Kubrick production. I have it on good authority <laughs> from the internet. We don't I mean, know. The moon, I we mean, the moon does know. look pretty flat here. So, Mike, you got one? No, I honestly, my play, like play, I don't have a meme of the week. My play of the week is just, I actually, um, I think it's respect to Kim for starting the private equity fund. I also think it's respect to the Carlisle guy who went out on a limb and did this because if it doesn't work. Yeah. Everyone's going to be like, yeah, dude, you started a fun with Kim Kardashian, <laughs> you know? Uh, mm. So I, I just have respect. I have respect for the entire endeavor. I think it's, I love it. I, I wish them both success. Honestly, that's why. It's cool. She's doing it in the bear market too. Like that, yeah. that's super based. That's how you know she's savvy. Agreed. Facts. Yeah. All right, fellas. I think we can call it there. Fun. See you same time next week. Take it easy. Later. Later.